This podcast is a production of the Vermont School for the Environment at Vermont Law and Graduate School. Welcome back to Hot House Earth. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and I'm going to be joined today by Professor Pat Parento, a Hot House Earth regular. Professor Pat Parento recently retired from a long career in environmental and climate law, which included 30 years here at Vermont Law and Graduate School, where he served as the director of the Environmental Law Center. He taught a full range of environmental and climate classes, and he founded the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Clinic, which gave students like me an opportunity to work on environmental litigation of national significance and learn how to become truly outstanding environmental advocates. This year, Pat was honored with the American Bar Association's section on environmental energy and resources with its Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in this space. And our listeners will remember Pat from our past episodes on the youth climate movement and the Trump era energy policy. Pat, welcome back to Hot House Earth. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Jeannie. Great to be with you. <laughs> so Pat, first, um, on behalf of everyone at Vermont Law and Graduate School, I just wanted to give you a very sincere and heart, heartfelt thank you for all of the work you've done, um, not just here at Vermont Law and Graduate School, but also on behalf of the environment and on behalf of climate, um, and um, really acknowledge what a multiplying effect your work has had as you've inspired thousands of students like myself. I had the honor of being in your class when I was a student and then your colleague um, and sent them out into the world to continue the work that you started way back, right? <laughs> right. Well, thank you for being so kind and generous. I really appreciate it. Gene. I'll tell you where I get the greatest satisfaction is from my colleagues like you and from the students I've had. I mean, my mark of success, if I can claim it, is, is really seeing the work that our students uh, from Vermont Law School, now Vermont Law and Graduate School, um, are doing. And I see it every day. I see them in the news. I see them in court. I see them in Congress. I see them in agencies. I see them in corporations. And it's really that pay it forward aspect, I think, of my career that's most satisfying. I couldn't agree more. I just on the smaller scale, since I've been working as a professor here at Vermont Law and Graduate School, that's also what gives me the most satisfaction as well. Um, Pat, I really wanted to take this opportunity today to talk about your career and really celebrate the work you've done. And at the same time, help our listeners who might be thinking about um, a career in environmental law or environmental advocacy or in climate law and climate advocacy, help them really understand what exactly environmental law, environmental advocacy, climate law, climate advocacy, what are these things? Um, and there may be other listeners out there who just want to know a little bit more about what people like you and what our students go on to do in this space. Um, so I thought a really great place to start might be to have you take us back to the beginning and talk about um, what inspired you to become an environmental lawyer? When did you realize you wanted to be an environmental lawyer? And, and what did you think that would entail? Yeah, I think the thing that imprinted on me uh, sort of a love of nature mm -hmm. uh, at an early age was I grew up in Nebraska in the Great Plains. And in those early days, I'm talking now, I was born in 1947, right? I'm, I'm the classic post-war baby boomer. 
Um, and so I was taken to the field early on in, in the 50s to hunt pheasants and quail and other game birds and also fish and do other things out of doors. And so I began to connect with nature. And there was a particular moment when I was with my uncle uh, and we were hunting along the Platte River in the central part of Nebraska. And we saw this really large, white, beautiful white bird uh, with um, a red cap and black tips on its wings. I had no idea what it was, neither did my uncle, but it turned out it was a whooping crane. And it was one of a very, very few. In fact, at that time, in the, in the, I'm now going all the way back into the 1950s, um, at that time, there were probably only 30 whooping cranes alive in the wild. Um, wow. So even though I didn't realize what it was I was seeing, I do think that moment stuck with me. And as I went on to college and law school and tried to find myself and figure out what I wanted to do, um, it was, it, my mother had a lot to do with this. She gave me the right books to read. She encouraged me to explore nature, to you know, understand how biology and ecology would work in, in the natural world. Uh, she was really, you know, wonderful, frankly, at getting me out of my shell and outdoors. Um, but as I looked at, at a, a career path, I was emerging from law school in 1972, right at the moment, of course, the environmental law movement was really uh, growing and, and exploding, in fact, you know, Earth Day 1970 uh, and all of that. And so given that environmental law was just emerging, I imagine there weren't really courses taught at law school at that time. How did you go about getting into that space? I represented a black community uh, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Our jurisdiction straddled the Missouri River from Omaha to Council Bluffs. And there was a major highway being proposed. And of course, they were going to put it, the interchange right in the middle of the black community. So we challenged the highway department's proposal to build this interchange. And I, I had just discovered this new law called NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act. And so I saw that there was a conference in St. Louis. Um, in those days, I'm not even sure how I found out about it. We didn't have internet, we didn't have cell phones, but I found out that the Environmental Law Institute, which had just been created in 1970, was sponsoring this conference on NEPA with a focus on highways. So I went to this conference, learned about how to use this law, brought a lawsuit, and managed to get the project re, uh, relocated so that it avoided this Black community. So once that happened, then I was really hooked. And that's when I decided to go to George Washington University, which at that time had the only uh, Masters of Environmental Law program in the country, with Arnold Reitze as the director, and, and pursue my LLM. And from there, it really did take off. It seems like when you started out, the goals of environmental law were very much around sort of natural resource protection and the tools, the legal tools that were created in the 70s were, um, were intended to um, fix the current environmental problems. How have you seen um, environmental laws and, and your career as well? How did that evolve over the course of the last 30, 40, 50 years? Um, so, you know, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Resource Conservation Recovery Act, Superfund, all of those laws exploded 
in the in the 70s. And they were all focused on problems that were localized. Um, you know, as, as time went on, we began to understand that you couldn't just look at individual pieces of habitat, for example, or wetlands in isolation or streams and rivers in isolation. We, we did begin to realize that you had to broaden your scope to look at entire watersheds or airsheds. And you had to understand that environmental problems were transboundary, that, that they crossed long distances. Um, but it was still mainly, the law was still mainly focused on sources and localities and geographic and site-specific uh, uh, issues, right? And, and um, you know, that has been turned completely upside down with climate, the climate crisis. And it is a crisis. We might as well name it. Um, and we can talk some more about that. But, you know, the, the early laws showed a lot of great success. Problems that we saw in the 70s into the 80s and 90s, um, in, it, the, the laws did much of what they were designed to do. It just turned out that the problems were much greater than we thought, that they really were global. And, and that's probably been the most striking thing I've noticed in my 50 year now, five decades career, is, is how it's all global now. Um, and, and, you know, the stratospheric ozone layer problem should have, uh, that's in the 1980s, mid 80s, that should have done more to alert us to the global nature of environmental challenges. You know, we, we've, we've, we've had to learn that you have to approach these problems holistically, uh, globally, um, systemically. All of the problems are rooted in the economy. And so over time, I've had to learn more about economic theory uh, both in concept and practice. You know, another insight here is that it's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to know the science. Um, and it's not even enough to know the technology. You, you have to put together uh, a system that addresses the root causes of all of these environmental problems. Most spectacularly now, the climate crisis, which means the transformation of all forms of economic activity, every sector, buildings, transportation, electricity, fuel, oil for houses, agriculture, every single aspect, clothing, food, every aspect of human uh, activity has to change. So nothing is more uh, striking to me than, than the realization that coming at problems individually or only looking at the symptoms of problems or only looking at identifiable sources of problems that are subject to a single jurisdiction, whether that's a state or even a nation, but understanding the interrelationship of these problems and sources and their interrelationship with the economic system, the financial systems, where does the money go and why does it go one place as opposed to another? 
And if you want to transition to a different economy that's less dependent on polluting sources, including carbon pollution of the atmosphere, you've got to really think broadly. So in answer to your earlier question about what is environmental law, the thing that now comes to my mind is it literally is everything. It's literally everything. It's tax policy, it's corporations policy, it's fiscal policy, it's securities law, it's banking law, it's everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talking about all the different areas that environmental law now ought to touch or does touch in reality, um, that sort of creates a conundrum for students who want to learn environmental law. Like, what do they focus on in the short term? Um, I think what I'm taking away from you, Pat, is that it's going to take a team, a bigger team of environmental lawyers all of whom are specializing perhaps in these different areas. So tax law, um, environmental statutes, um, energy law and policy, um, and all of us coming together and working together to shape these systems and um, have a real impact on these bigger global problems. Whereas before perhaps environmental law was a much more discrete subject matter to, to study and practice. That's what sharpens your own thinking and challenges your own thinking and sometimes have to be open to the fact that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I had to learn there. So you need that instinct of being willing to push yourself and take chances and have confidence in your abilities. Uh, you des- desperately need th- those qualities. But at the same time, you, you have to be open to the you know, possibility that you still have a lot to learn, that you could be wrong, that, that your opponent might actually have a, a valid point. Um, and whether or not you're in a position to concede that point at any particular time uh, is not always the question. It's more like, did I just learn something from this conversation or this conflict or this controversy that we had to resolve that will help me be a better lawyer, a better person, and, and a better problem solver? Um, that's really the essence, isn't it, of what we do. It's, it's, it's supposed to be, anyway, solving problems, maybe avoiding problems, of course, anticipating problems, advising clients, you know, how to avoid uh, these kinds of problems, legal problems. Um, but it's, you know, it's also in your own career, how do you evolve and, and develop yourself? You know, in academia, uh, you know, that's a question of helping young scholars build their scholarship and young teachers learn the best strategies for teaching, whether it's in a large class setting, a seminar setting, a clinical setting, different techniques, different methodologies, different skill sets, um, you know, have to be learned. They, they, they aren't necessarily innate or natural. Yeah, I think my advice as well for students coming up through these degrees right now is if you really care about these issues, which all of them do, even if you are finding it hard and you're not a natural at it and it's an uncomfortable process of growth, it's so worth hanging in there um, because ultimately you're going to have a career that's incredibly meaningful 
and hopefully leaves the world in a better place because of that hard work you're putting in now and over the course of your career like you've done Pat. Yeah, I think hard work does pay. I mean, th there's there's satisfaction in just knowing you worked hard, mm -hmm. that you gave it your best shot, that you left it on the field, as we say. Um, and losses are bitter. There's no question about it, but they're temporary. You know, the point is, um, you, you really do have to take the long view. And particularly now with the climate crisis, my advice to uh, the young advocates that are emerging from not only law schools, but professional schools writ large, is this is going to be your life's work. This 21st century is the century of climate. And the, the proportion of these different challenges, how effective are we at reducing emissions and getting a handle and improving the sequestration systems of the earth, the, the forest and the soil and the wetlands and all the rest, the sinks of, of, of these gases and this pollution. Um, so reducing the emissions and increasing the, the sequestration, that challenge right along with the, the galloping challenge of adapting to this onrushing fires, droughts, floods. And I think going back to your previous statement um, about what is environmental law, and I guess now what is climate law, which um, encompasses environmental law also, um, each of us at, in the legal space has a different skill and tool that we can bring to these problems. And so um, making sure that we're, we're using um, our own expertise um, in this field and, and there's many different ways to do it. What you want to look for, are jobs and career tracks where you can improve, where you're going to get good critical feedback like we've talked about. You're going to get assignments that, that challenge you, um, but support that helps you succeed. Um, you want a work environment where the work is meaningful and where your role is appreciated and respected and where your views are listened to. And sometimes they're followed and sometimes they're not. Um, and you're okay with that. And so as long as you can conceptualize your role as doing the hard work of researching the problem, understanding the facts, understanding the science, understanding the technology, understanding the land use, whatever it is that you're focused on, understand it as well as you can possibly understand it, find the law that applies, evaluate the law and the facts, develop an opinion, develop advice, or develop a lawsuit, or develop a rule, or write a permit. It doesn't matter. All of these different instruments of our trade, it doesn't matter. They all involve the same skills. Can you research? Can you write? Can you think? Can you analyze? Can you evaluate? Can you communicate? So if you stay focused on all of those basics and you become as good as you can possibly be at those things, it doesn't matter where you go with it. Just go where your heart tells you and go where the opportunities are, obviously, um, and just make the most of it. And if it turns out it wasn't quite what you expected, fine, make a change. There's always going to be opportunities for change. The opportunities that have come up in my life, none of them did I foresee. None of them. So 
I just, you just don't worry about that. You just do, do become, you know, uh, the best part of you that you can be. And then the opportunities will be there. The jobs will be there for you to show what you can do and the difference that you can make. And that's why, in one sense, although the, the you know, climate uh, pre it presents a real crisis, like all crises, it also presents a hell of an opportunity. You know, this generation has the opportunity to literally be the best generation of the 21st century. So, um, you know, that's that's the way I think our current generation of emerging lawyers and environmental professionals need to think about it. Yeah, what an incredible opportunity I have to do something really meaningful for the world that's going to benefit people in all kinds of ways, better jobs, better systems, more fair, more equitable, all that stuff mm -hmm. is, is the challenge right now. So Pat, what's next for you? What, what are you going to be doing in your retirement? Can you even retire? I've been reading a whole lot more about banking regulation than I ever thought I would, even securities law than I thought I would, and all this stuff about ESG, environment, social governance, mm -hmm. and private governance, and uh, greenwashing, and the role of lawyers uh, in all of this process, law, lawyers, rules. But I, I haven't given up completely on my interest in litigation. So uh, I've, I've taken note uh, of this new case just filed in uh, Puerto, Puerto Rico, um, uh, you know, in implementing the, the racketeering law, RICO, and challenging the oil companies uh, under a civil RICO case which is a fascinating new development in this whole field of climate litigation. I just finished a chapter of a book on climate litigation. I'm going to keep building on that. There's lots of rights-based uh, climate litigation occurring in other parts of the world, not so much in the United States, but in Europe and in South America and other parts of the world. There's some very interesting uh, developments. We just thank you so much for your service and um, for all of the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do for the environment and climate and for all of the students here at the Vermont Law and Graduate School and your colleagues here. We miss you. We miss you at Eaton House. Well, I miss you guys too. And I'm, I'm very proud of what the school is doing now. It's, I think it's entering a new era uh, and taking it to another level, as they say. So I'm, I'm happy to see it. If you want to hear more about hot topics on environmental law and policy issues, check us out. Subscribe to the Hot House Earth Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.